Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we fluoresce your brain with weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, the 2007 Diffusion team talk about deadly Christmas gifts, and Mike Corti shoots gold at nanoparticles with lasers to fight mind-controlling parasites. But first, news of glowing animals. Baby Glow. Platypuses glow, but are endangered. Following this discovery, we found that many marsupials glow, and some microscopic tardigrades, or water bears, glow too. Platypuses can sense electric fields with their bill, have venomous spurs on their heels, and of course, are mammals that lay eggs. A colleague of American mammologist Paula Spaeth Anik observed in the wild a flying squirrel whose fur glowed in ultraviolet light. It fluoresced. So she went to look at the preserved mammal skin collection at the Museum of Chicago and found that the fur on three different flying squirrel species glowed under ultraviolet light. In 2009, the only North American marsupial, the opossum, was found to glow in ultraviolet. And the platypus drawer was next to the marsupial drawer. So Dr. Spaeth Anik tested the platypus skins and found that they glow bright fluorescent green and blue in ultraviolet light. She also examined a platypus specimen at the University of Nebraska State Museum in Lincoln to make sure the Museum of Chicago specimen wasn't a freak accident. But that fur glowed brightly too. Dr. Spaeth Anik is confident that the glow isn't an artifact of preservation because several of the squirrel species and the echidna pelts didn't fluoresce. We don't know the reason the platypuses glow, if it does something for them now, or if it had a purpose in their distant ancestors and just persisted as harmless today. Zoologist and amateur mycologist Linda Reinhold reported in the autumn-winter 2020 edition of the Queensland Mycologist that a roadkill specimen of platypus in Queensland was seen to glow under ultraviolet light. The curator of mammology at the Western Australian Museum, Kenny Trevelyan, read the reports and shone an ultraviolet light on his entire collection. He found that all the herbivore marsupials glowed, but none of the carnivore marsupials. Australian scientists have again urged the science-deaf Australian federal government to classify the uniquely Australian platypus as a threatened species. The platypus population is down to half of what it was 30 years ago, due to historic land clearing, bad river regulation, particularly the Murray-Darling Basin, and extreme droughts. The area of eastern Australia where platypuses are found has shrunk by about 200,000 square kilometres, about 22% over that period. 
listing the platypus as an endangered species would protect the animal by increasing the scrutiny given to developments that threaten them and prioritise funding for their monitoring. The government failed to list platypuses and only listed koalas under extreme pressure from the public. Then they voted to kill a bill that would have formally protected koalas from land clearing what little remains of their habitat after the devastating wildfires earlier this year. A newly discovered species of tardigrades, those tough microscopic water bears that can survive in extreme temperatures and pressures, glow blue under ultraviolet light. Researchers from the Indian Institute of Science in Bangalore, India, found this species of tardigrade is protected from ultraviolet light by a glowing pigment that converts the dangerous radiation into visible light. The scientists identified and then grew this species of tardigrade in the lab after plucking specimens from a mossy wall on the Institute campus. After sitting under a germicidal ultraviolet lamp for 15 minutes, ample time to kill most microbes and hurt the skin of a human, all tardigrade specimens survived. After an hour of ultraviolet exposure, 60% of strongly fluorescent individuals survived more than 30 days, while all of the less fluorescent specimens died within 20 days. The researchers soaked roundworms and individuals from a tardigrade species that doesn't resist ultraviolet light in a bath of pureed glowing tardigrades. The glow-soaked animals were more resistant to ultraviolet than identical animals that were just wet. We don't know just how the glowing pigment protects from ultraviolet light. Once they can identify the pigment and how it works, the researchers hope to mass produce it and include the pigment in a glowing sunscreen. The papers were titled Biofluorescence in the Platypus and Naturally Occurring Fluorescence Protects the Eutardigrade Paramacrobiotis from Ultraviolet Radiation and was published in the Journal of the Royal Society. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. It's time to finish your search for the perfect gift, but some gifts are better left ungiven. From 2007, the Diffusion team explore dangerous gifts. Now, did you get socks and underwear again for Christmas? Well, you'll be thanking your lucky stars that you didn't get some of the presents we're just about to talk about. Now, we've got a bit of a panel discussion here on the 10 most fatal toys of the 20th century. And joining me will be Lachlan Watmore, Ian Wolfe, Catherine Behag, and Sasha Stelzer. Ian, do you want to kick us off? Sure. This is from Radar Magazine. For example, there's the Snack Time Cabbage Patch Dolls, which said, Feed me on the packaging for the 1996 Cabbage Patch Snack Time Kid. What could possibly go wrong with a doll that has a motorised mouth with teeth? (laughs) Where do you buy this? It sounds like something you'd be buying down at King's Cross, actually. With teeth? (laughs) Whatever you like. A local toy shop. Now, they would stop chewing when snack time was done. They promised. And then they chomped your child's finger off. 
There's no mechanism to turn them off should any trouble arise. And it was only a matter of time before some long blonde hair got caught in the doll's rabid jaws. After 35 fingers and ponytails fell victim, the snack time kids were removed from retail shelves forever and 500,000 customers were offered a full $40 refund. I've got another one over here. It's a Barbie doll. But the catch is it's on a rocket that flies around and it's been known to cause great pain to the, the kids that got it for Christmas in 1994. The injuries included scratched corneas, temporary blindness, mild concussions, broken ribs and teeth and facial lacerations that required stitches. That's fantastic. I'm imagining mm. the kids in 1994 getting these gifts and losing their eyes. <laughs> and then a couple of years later, when the parents think, oh, you've grown into Cabbage Patch dolls now, and you're getting these things to chew your fingers off. This is fantastic. I'm glad I wasn't a girl in the early 90s. Well, give, that, give that a couple more years, and of course they'll be ready for uh, things on wheels, like bikes and trikes, of course. Uh, the Fisher-Price Power Wheels motorcycle is one of those toys that kids salivate over for years. Of course, everyone wants a powered bike or something. Um, didn't always give a smooth ride. Eager youngsters who gunned the throttle forward often stayed that it, found that it stayed gunned. The uh, uh, carburetor was stuck. The butterfly in the carburetor was obviously stuck open, this thing being a petrol-powered thing. Hey, I know about these things. Anyway, presumably the child on the motorcycle was then taken on a hellish intestine-twisting scream ride, and at one point he or she would have to face choices uh, unthinkable except in an evil Knievel meets Knight Rider crossover episode, like, you know, am I going to make Snake River Canyon with this sort of thing? <laughs> Is it sentient? Can it be reasoned with? That sort of Will thing, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, Well, I think these kids are lucky they weren't born in the 60s. In 1964, Mattel released the Creepy Crawly Thingmaker, Nothing says fun like using a, an open 150-degree hot plate to create molten rubbery insects that you can throw at your little sister while trying to avoid setting your house on fire. So not only was this hot plate searing 150 degrees, but kids that survived the sort of serious injury or disfigurement could then eat their creation. However, it was toxic as well. So... <laughs> Back in the 50s, Gilbert introduced his Uranium-238 Atomic Energy Lab, which is a radioactive learning set. He had a dream that nuclear power could capture the imaginations of children everywhere. And for a mere 49.50, the kit came complete with very low-level radioactive sources, a Geiger counter, a Wilson cloud chamber, so you see where the particles went, a spin theroscope to see live radioactive disintegration, four samples of uranium-bearing ores... <laughs> And an electroscope to measure the radioactivity. And it even came with a Learn How Dagwood Splits the Atom comic book, written by the director of the Manhattan Project. If you go to United Nuclear on the net, you can still buy kits like this, only safer. So another one is mini hammocks from Easy Sales. And they sound innocent enough. Mini hammocks sound cool. (laughs) They do sound cool for the babies. Um, In (laughs) August 1996, the product resulted in the fatal and near-fatal asphyxiation of dozens of kids aged 5 to 17. Easy recalled 3 million of them. Among the banned Easy products were Hangouts baby hammocks woven from thin cotton and nylon, nylon strings. Lawn darts, or jarts, were massive weighted spears. You threw them. They stuck where they landed. If they happened to land in your skull, well, then you should have moved. During their brief reign in the 1980s suburbia, jarts racked up 6,700 injuries and four deaths. No one's known to have used jarts for their intended purpose. 
Shouldn't be surprising then that an accident involving a wayward spear and a semi-permeable head of a seven-year-old resulted in the toys being banned from the market in 1988. <laughs> that is so cool. <laughs> I thought that samurai sword my mum gave me was dangerous. <laughs> Well, if you're listening to us now, then clearly you got none of these presents for Christmas. Thank you, Mark West, Jackie Hayes, Chris Stewart, Lachlan Watmore, Catherine B. Hag, and Sasha Stelter. And finally, in 2008, I was employed at the University of Technology, Sydney, to interview some of their scientists for an undergraduate course in communicating with non-technical people for scientists. Mike Cordy was using nanotechnology to fight a serious parasitic illness. When you take your medicine, the drugs go through your whole body and can cause unwelcome side effects. The dream of medicine is the magic bullet that only targets harm in the body. Michael Corty, Professor of Nanotechnology at the University of Technology, Sydney, describes his research using lasers to zap gold nanoparticles to kill cancer cells and parasites. Michael, what are you working on at the moment? Well, in the general area of nanotechnology, uh, we've become fascinated with the idea of using nanoparticles in a medical context. The general idea is to use a tiny particle, maybe it's a particle of gold or maybe of silver, and stick stuff on the outside so that it will go into the body like a sort of a self-guided missile to maybe target cancer or a parasite or something else. Right, sort of the magic missile. Well, we kind of call it the golden bullet by analogy to the silver bullet, which uh, takes out vampires and such like. Uh, The golden bullet is better than a silver bullet, we reckon, because uh, gold is inert. Silver, unfortunately, does react in the human body and uh, would cause some irritation. But gold, being the most noble of all the metals, basically does nothing untoward. So it doesn't rust? It doesn't rust, doesn't dissolve. It just goes in and... Its very inertness makes it a suitable platform, a kind of a, a truck on which we can stick things and use it just to move stuff around with. And there were some lasers involved with some of the medical applications? Oh, yeah, that's, that's right. Because gold is inert, it does nothing on its own at all, absolutely nothing. So if we want to deliver some sort of destructive payload in the body, we've either got to stick toxic drugs on the gold particle, or better still, we can irradiate the gold particle with a low-power laser. And this thing has caught the attention of a number of people around the world because the treatment will only um, be activated wherever the laser is shining. So that's quite handy. So that way we avoid a sort of collateral damage to other parts of the body. So it's a kind of a two-way targeting system. First we take the gold nanoparticle and we do something, and there's a variety of schemes we can employ. We do something to target it to a particular a site, maybe it's a cancer tumor or some kind of cell in the body. So that's already targeted one way. And then we target it a second way by only shining the laser where we want the treatment to be activated. So we can get fantastic selectivity with this kind of scheme. And this is a totally new idea in medicine because in general drugs, pharmaceutical compounds and so on, go into the body and they're then taken up in the bloodstream and they go everywhere. So if it's a toxic drug, you feel rotten. So how small are the nanoparticles? When we're talking nano, we're we're talking really, really tiny here. Yeah, they they definitely are tiny. Uh, They're really only made of several hundred to several thousand gold atoms. 
that is yeah, that is absolutely minute. They are way smaller than the wavelength of of light, for example. Right. They are so tiny, you can fit millions of nanoparticles across a human hair. So that's how small they are. So if they're smaller than the wavelengths of light, what sort of coloured light are you going to be shining on them to activate? Oh, yeah, that, that's a special attribute of gold and, and silver and one or two other metals. Even though they're so tiny, they have a special electromagnetic resonance with particular wavelengths of light. In the case of gold, it's round about 520 nanometers, which is green light. So we would perhaps use a green laser. And the beauty of this is, is the resonance is quite sharp. So outside of that, nothing really happens. So provided we use a green laser and shine it exactly where we want the treatment to be activated, we will get localized heating and perhaps we can cauterize the tumor. Wow. So you can basically you take a drug that has the gold nanoparticles with the special extra bits attached and this would go all over your body, but it would only get activated where the green laser was shining. Uh, yep, that's the one mode. So that, in that mode, the, the gold's everywhere, but you only activate it where the laser is. But we can often do better than that because some things in the body, like parasites and some kinds of cancer, are not invisible to the immune system. So provided we can raise an antibody against those things and then stick that same antibody on the surface of the gold, then it acts like a little guided missile. So it floats around in the bloodstream, and when it finds its target, maybe the cancer cell, it latches on. And then sometime later, when it suits us, we can irradiate with the laser. So we get uh, two-way targeting with that scheme. If this isn't a tricky question, if the gold doesn't react with things, and that's one of the reasons it's so useful, how do you stick things to it? Oh, yeah, that, that's a, not a tricky question. That's a very profound and, and good question. It turns out that while gold doesn't oxidize, and oxygen is the usual problem with metals because the atmosphere is full of this stuff, it does have a bit of affinity to sulfur. And sulfur is present in amino acids, so there's usually a way to stick an antibody or a protein or some DNA down on gold. As long as we can find the sulfur atom, that will form a reasonably good bond with the gold particles. So it's a little trick of gold surface chemistry. Can't use that trick for anything else because oxygen gets there first, but not for gold. Well, most of the uh, people in this field in the world, and there's not a lot of people, there's maybe only a dozen groups around the world, are going off to cancer because cancer is a big disease in the developed economies. We have an aging population and so on. But we chose not to do that at UTS. Rather, we've gone after two other targets. The first of these are the macrophage cells in your body, the white blood cells, loosely. And these can be a host for dread parasitic diseases. And it's a bit of an orphan scenario because the big drug companies are not looking at these diseases. So we're trying to develop our own research to target macrophage cells and also the parasites themselves. And ultimately, one would want to target a parasite like malaria. It turns out, though, that malaria parasites are quite tricky to cultivate in the lab here in Sydney. And so we've chosen a slightly more amenable target in the meantime, a little critter known as Toxoplasmosis gondii. Oh, this one I know about. Isn't this the one that changes behavior? Yeah, it's, it's well, that's controversial, but I think the evidence is starting to point in this direction. A lot of these parasites have very strange and quite sinister effects on their hosts. They're parasites in snails, for example, that force the snail up out of the water so birds can eat it. I mean, that's pretty creepy. 
In the case of Toxo, it has certainly been proven that it causes rats to lose their fear of cats. Now, you might wonder why cats? Well, in fact, the real host of Toxoplasmosis gondii is the cat. It passes through other mammals on its way to being something else, but it has to go through a cat at some point in its life cycle. So a parasite that has evolved to cause rats or other small mammals to lose their fear of cats has got a huge advantage. Actually, in humans, Toxo is not that dangerous unless you're pregnant or you're immunocompromised or you have HIV, but it's a good model for us. We know a lot about Toxo at UTS, and as a parasite, we can cultivate in the lab, and it's simply a kind of a proxy for other parasites. So does this explain all those people that that have hundreds of cats in their house? (laughs) Well, that part is controversial, but it obviously has been noticed that there are some crazy people with a lot of cats. And I'll put it to you that if a parasite can program a snail or a rat to do something bizarre, why are we immune? We are not immune to this kind of behavior modification. It's very creepy. It is. So your gold nanoparticles may be attacking the toxoparasites. Yeah, so what we do, the toxo lives in cells, but it has to come out at a certain point because it multiplies like crazy inside the cell and basically bursts your cell from the inside. Then for a couple of hours, the little toxo um, organisms, at that point they're known as tachozoites, are swimming around in your blood like little wriggly bananas. That's the point when we target them. So in this sort of idea of medical treatment, you would introduce the gold nanoparticles into the bloodstream. They latch themselves onto the toxos, and simultaneously you irradiate the person with the laser, or perhaps strong sunlight even might be sufficient in this case, and kill them while they're out in the blood. Unfortunately, once they get back into a cell, they become invisible to the immune system, which is the whole point while they go into the cell. So it's um, a catch-22. They become quite hard to treat then. Malaria is a similar deal, but unfortunately the malaria parasite only comes out of a cell for a few minutes. And this raises the ante on the difficulty of doing this in the lab. So when it comes out for a few minutes, that is to breed or to leave the host? Find another host. Can you induce that or do you just have to wait? Oh, good question. Yeah, maybe. Obviously, if you can provoke a parasite to leave a cell prematurely, you've got the basis for medical treatment. But I actually don't know how far that's been taken. So with the gold and the laser process we were talking earlier, how soon do you think before some sort of treatments might be available based on the gold nanoparticles? Well, Toxo is just a placeholder for us, for for the parasite work. Actually, as far as cancer goes, this has already reached clinical trials in the USA. So it's not yet commercially available, but a certain kinds of cancer, and I think breast cancer is one of those, has been targeted in trials in Texas. Now, these kinds of things usually take five to ten years because this is all evidence-based medicine. If it doesn't work, we sling it out because we don't want to waste our time with mumbo-jumbo. Michael Cordy, thank you very much. Pleasure. That was the now Associate Head of School within the University of Technology's School of Mathematical and Physical Sciences, Michael Cordy, talking about zapping gold nanoparticles with lasers to cure mind-controlling parasites. In 2008. I love cats. I love every kind of cat. I just want to hug all of them, but I can't get hug every cat. Get hug every cat. So anyway, I am a cat lover and I love to hug.
Every Cat is based on a parody by Kara Hartman, which was songified by the Gregory Brothers. You can see videos of many of my interviews from 2020 on the Diffusion YouTube channel. Subscribe and like at youtube.com slash c slash Diffusion Radio. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2NVR in Ambaka Valley, 3NBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88, in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on DiffusionRadio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf. Support Diffusion by buying from the affiliate links at diffusionradio.com slash support. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, 
now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.